Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I've got some good news or perhaps some bad news. Because Pastor Rob is on vacation in Hawaii and Pastor Mike is somewhere on a mountaintop freezing with the youth, as it happens every year on this particular week, it's my turn once again. Good news, bad news, I leave that judgment to you, but I do have a certain level of familiarity with the process. Now, sometimes with familiarity comes an opportunity for something new, and I seized it today. So rather than exploring the gospel lesson from Matthew 4 for the fifth straight time that I've had to do this, uh, the, the A series in, in, the, in the pericope, uh, I'm going to take a road less traveled and explore our psalm for today, Psalm 27. Psalm 27 was written by King David. And in it, we get a glimpse of his heart as the king sets his eyes upon his redeemer, even in the midst of extreme pressure from enemies, both without and within. Listen to how he begins. The Lord is my life and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, if anyone ever had a right to be afraid, it was David. Just consider his life. He spent his early youth as a shepherd. And he spent his days protecting his family's flocks from wild beasts, from rival tribes that still roamed the area and made trouble from time to time, including the Philistines, more on them in a minute, and then the occasional band of marauding criminals just looking to, to make something, you know? And it, it, these are just the facts of life living in the wilds of the promised land in David's time. He was living among the 12 tribes who had settled more or less into the land the Lord had provided for them, but they were having a rough time of it. By making accommodations with, rather than expelling those pesky tribes that had inhabited the land before them, Israel continually struggled to hold on to their territory and hold on to their faith. They had gone through the period of the judges, if you remember, where they were constantly losing their way, but then God would appear and bring them back. There was this constant cycle of apostasy, of falling away from God, then the inevitable oppression as the, the enemies try to take advantage. And then the Israelites would repent and God would deliver them. 
You know, they, and in the process, they had these constant hassles with those tribes that they didn't get rid of when God told them to, the Ammonites, the Midianites, the Moabites, and the Philistines, right? They're all acting as troubling tormentors for the poor Israelites who just didn't listen to God. But instead of recognizing the miraculous presence of God in all these repeated acts of deliverance, the Israelites got it into their heads that all they needed to do to be ultimately successful was get a king. Their enemies all had kings. Why why shouldn't they? That's their thinking. Of course, they're squeezing the Lord right out of the leadership question with this demand for a king. But God had an answer for that, too. He said, you want a king? I got a king for you. Check out Saul. Now, Saul was like the perfect Hollywood image of a king. He was tall, he was strong, he was handsome, he was brave after a fashion. He had all the pieces that you would ever want. You know, uh, he was like the, the perfect Hollywood casting version of a king. But actions speak louder than words, and by the time the Lord pointed Samuel, his prophet, toward a man after his own heart. And David comes onto the scene. He asks the Israelites, how's how's that king stuff working out for you? He wasn't very good. Young David was left to clean up Saul's mess because those persistent Philistines were back, right? Right? They brought the whole brute squad with them in the person of Goliath. So what's not to be afraid of? Well, David knew something. He writes this. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. He was so confident in this concept that for a time he feigned madness so that he could live with these once and future enemies, the Philistines, hiding out there from the greater wrath of Saul who was trying to kill him. So he spent a few years in the Philistine region in a life-or-death game of hide-and-seek with Saul. The Lord protected David throughout all of these travails, and David was able to realize these words in his life, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. This is verses 5 and 6. See, this psalm, as you go through it, it reads almost like a resume. It's just a, a recounting of all the things that David had done and gone through 
during the course of his life. David was a man of unique qualities. He was a fierce warrior. He was able to turn the slimmest of odds into certain victory. He had a certain magic about him. He was deeply loyal. Loyal even to a king who actively tried to kill him more than once. Now that's loyalty. Most of all, he was a man who patiently trusted in God, waiting on his timing to finally take on the mantle of king. And you can truly hear his heart as he writes this, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Now, who among us has not had similar thoughts and feelings as we've struggled along in our journey of faith? As we tend to hide our faults, you know, but then eventually they find us out and we have to once again seek forgiveness and restoration both in the eyes of God and of men. Now, a few months ago, I was listening to a uh, pastor on, on the radio, and, and he made a passing comment about Old Testament Christians. And frankly, I had never thought about the prophets and the patriarchs in that way. And at first, I found that reference kind of jarring. It, 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 you know, There's just something that didn't feel right. But, you know, the more I thought about it, the more sense it made to me. The Lord's ever-expanding revelation of his plan for salvation was a roadmap to the identity and purpose of the coming Messiah. If you read the Torah carefully, you'll find prophecies of a miraculous birth that leads to the promise of forgiveness and peace in spite of unjust treatment and painfully unselfish sacrifice. We see that pictured again and again in the stories of the lives of the patriarchs. And I've come to the conclusion that your typical Old Testament age believer, like David, could identify with almost every word of the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to recite right after this sermon is done, now, sure, they, they couldn't re relate specifically to the names that are mentioned there. Who, who knows from Pontius Pilate? But uh, they absolutely could say amen to the ark that runs through the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, all these ideas can be found in the words of the patriarchs and the prophets. And all of them point 
to the coming Messiah, describing in great detail the time, the place, the attributes, and the actions of the one who is coming to conclude God's plan of salvation. David wrote this, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. See, we can relate. We're under siege in this life. We're constantly bombarded with temptations and distractions that draw our eyes away and our hearts away from our Creator sustainer and redeemer and as i was casting about for things to say about this psalm i came across a passage in a book entitled first last things it's it's co-written with uh, pastor jonathan fisk but this portion was written by pastor brian wolfmuller and in it he relates how martin luther turns this image of besiegement on its head in one of his sermons. So Dr. Luther, in, in his understanding of our spiritual state, he sees us as already captive to the dark forces of this age, bound in a castle dungeon, hopelessly trapped and utterly unable to free ourselves. In his sermon, this castle is under attack. The armies are closing in, and the battle is increasingly ferocious as they get nearer and nearer, and the missiles start to come in. Stones catapulted against the castle walls, and the whole castle is shuddering at each impact. He writes this. This is a terrible place to be in this castle unless you are the one in the dungeon and you know that the enemies or the, the armies outside are in fact the armies of your father who has come to rescue you. So now as Every time the castle rocks and you hear another missile hit the wall and feel it, you rejoice. Every time those rafters shake, you rejoice because you know that your redemption is getting closer. Imagine it. You're in this dark dungeon underneath the castle and it's being besieged by your father. Every missile that strikes home is going to loosen the rocks containing you until you begin to see that first slim shaft of light pierce the darkness. And then another shaft and another. Each new impact loosens the rocks a little bit more, letting in more and more of that glorious light. Think of those missiles as the Lord in action, so that every time you hear his word, Every time you celebrate another Lord's Day 
or share in the sacrament or receive an answer to prayer, the cracks in your prison walls yield a bit more, letting in more light, light of the world to come, light of the resurrection shining in upon you. So as we hear the gospel, as we go to the Lord's table, as we read the Bible, as we bless one another in the name of Jesus during our lifetimes together, the rocks of the devil's kingdom are being shaken. The darkness is starting to break. And we can begin to see the kingdom coming. You know, the light starts out rather intermittently, a little here, a little there. But as we continue in God's graces, we experience more and more of his enlightenment until the Father finally rips the roof from our captivity once and for all. And we are at last safely at home in our Father's embrace. That is the hope we hold on to that one day, eternal life and light will break for each of us in the overwhelming glory of that last day, the resurrection. One of David's most enduring qualities was his patience. So heed his closing words. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. In that way, you can look forward with David as he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I pray that in Christian faith, we, with David, can all say, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Grant this, O Lord, unto us all. Amen and amen.